0: Good afternoon, and thank you for tuning in to today's event on Cy important new book, The Living Presidency, an originalist argument against its ever-expanding powers. I'm Gene Healy. I'm a vice president at the Cato Institute, and I'll be your moderator today. Now, in happier times, we'd all be physically present at Cato headquarters at 1000 Massachusetts Avenue. Uh, We do the event in the Hayek Auditorium, and then at five we'd head upstairs for beer, wine, and hors Uh, d'oeuvres. I would sign some books and uh, we'd have a great time in the Winter Garden. Uh, Unfortunately, circumstances being what they are, you'll uh, have to provide your own refreshments, uh, but on the plus side, on the internet, nobody knows whether you're wearing sweatpants. I'm going to start by introducing our guests, Sai Prakash and Jack Goldsmith. Uh, Then Sai will give us the overview of the book. Jack will give us some comments on the book and we'll take it from there, trying to field as many of your questions as possible. And you can submit those questions through the event page or over Twitter, Facebook, or YouTube uh, using the hashtag CatoEvents. First, uh, our first guest uh, is our author, Sai Prakash. He's the James Monroe Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of Virginia, as well as a senior fellow at UVA's Miller Center for the Study of the Presidency. And he's one of the nation's leading constitutional scholars, especially with regard to presidential powers, and the author of an equally ex- excellent previous book, Imperial from the Beginning, The Constitution of the original executive. Jack Goldsmith is the Henry L. Shattuck Professor of Law at Harvard, and someone who, as you're probably aware, uh, has uh, seen the executive branch from the inside during a uh, high-profile, extremely tense uh, tenure in the Bush administration's Office of Legal Counsel during a key early period in the War on Terror. Uh, Jack is one of our most thoughtful commentators on the modern presidency in venues like The Atlantic, uh, on the Lawfare blog, and books like The Terror Presidency and Power and Constraint. His latest book, also highly recommended, is In Hoffa's Shadow. It was also the subject of, for one of the last in-person public events we had at Cato uh, back in early March before the lockdown. So uh, Jack, thanks for coming back so soon if only virtually. Uh, So uh, I'm also a great admirer of your previous book, uh, Imperial from the Beginning, but if you'll forgive me for saying so, uh, I think it's one of the most misleadingly titled books in recent memory. Uh, It it makes a convincing case that in the original design that the the framers had for the presidency, uh, that office had very little in the way of emergency powers or independent war powers, and no rightful claim to an executive privilege that could shield its uh, inner workings from uh, congressional demands for information. And, uh, you know, when I initially read it, I I said to myself, if that's an imperial presidency, uh, I'll take it. Uh, In your new book, you cover and expand uh, some of those themes, uh, but the living presidency is it seems to me really more a book about what the office it's the next step it's a book about what the office has become a, and the vast gulf between uh, a comparatively modest office and what the office uh you know has become now uh, an institution with near full spectrum dominance over american life and law uh and in telling the story of how we got here you uh You point to a a somewhat counterintuitive culprit, uh, the notion of a living constitution, which is something that I think we tend to associate with uh, activist judges and left-leaning scholars uh, who are also uh, in the main people who oppose key features of the so-called imperial presidency. So. Tell us the story of uh, the new book. What is the living presidency? What's its relationship with the living Constitution, and uh, how did we get here to this uh, situation that you call uh, a funhouse mirror version uh, of the the original presidency? And can we ever go back?
1: Well, Gene, I'm absolutely delighted to be with you here today, and Jack, and of course the audience. My connection to Cato goes back uh, decades. When I was a summer intern in Washington, I had the occasion to come to some of the institution's events, of the Institute's events, including... Events on farm subsidies, uh, and thankfully we've uh, finally taken care of that problem. So uh, you know, I I'm I'm really especially glad to be with you two folks because both of you folks are experts on the modern presidency as well. You both have superb books, and you know I recommend them to the audience. There's Gene's book, uh, "The Cult of the Presidency," and Gene just mentioned Jack's book, "The The Terror Presidency," and my book kind of fits in within the same genre. Um, I, you know, and I've got the book over my shoulder here. Operators are standing by. You, you should definitely get it. <laughs> I have sort of four points that I want to make today because I want to be brief. The, the first point is, you know, why do progressives favor a living constitution, one that changes with the time, but simultaneously disfavor, excoriate, lament a living, changeable, mutable presidency? Um, and I think we see this phenomenon all the time. We see liberals or progressives citing what the founders would say about the modern presidency. We saw this most recently with respect to impeachment. Uh, progressives citing James Madison and 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 Alexander Hamilton about what it what a high crime and misdemeanor is. And that's that's a perfectly fine argument if you're an originalist, but it, it's a little puzzling if you're not. And as Gene points out, a lot of progressives believe that modern times, call for a modern updated constitution, save with respect to the presidency. And I I basically, you know, use the title living presidency to provoke uh, progressives, to make them think about what I think is a contradiction between their professed admiration for a changing constitution, but their, you know, uh, soft spot for the founders' presidency, you know what why what, what is wrong with an imperial presidency that grows over time if you can have an imperial congress whose legislative powers can change over time or an imperial judiciary whose role over constitutional rights and the creation and expansion of them changes over time my second point that i want to bring today is that living constitutionalism systematically favors the presidency as an institution why it turns out that if you're going to have constitutional change of the informal variety rather than through Article 5. The presidency is the institution best poised to deliver that informal constitutional change. Today, we expect our presidents to articulate constitutional visions, right? We expect them to be pro life or pro choice, pro or anti gun, pro or anti affirmative action, uh, you know, pro or anti all sorts of things, including pro or anti shutdowns with respect to, co- to COVID 19. Um, well, they gratify our desires, right? They express constitutional visions, they articulate them, they defend them. And then guess what? They appoint justices and judges that will carry on that legacy long after they're gone. And so when we think about one of the momentous changes in constitutional law, the New Deal, we often think about the justices, but they were really just agents of Franklin Roosevelt, not in the sense that he was looking over their shoulder, but he, he picked people that had the same constitution, constitutional vision that he had of unchecked federal legislative power. And so, my, my thesis is if you are a living constitutionalist, you are systematically favoring the president in terms of influencing that informal constitutional change. And, and I argue in the book that there's no single person who has greater influence over the shape of constitutional law, the future shape of constitutional law than the presidency, right? Not even Anthony Kennedy had as much influence as a a president can possibly wield. My my third point is that the balance of political forces systematically favors the presidency when it comes to constitutional disputes or statutory disputes for that matter. Uh, As presidents grasp for additional authority, typically to implement their policies or their policy agenda, agendas that are often favored by co-partisans. They can rely upon a bedrock of popular support by their uh, allies in the public, Americans like you and me. If the president, if we favor a wall and the president, you know, diverts funds to build that wall, we are going to find ourselves defending the president's actions and defending their legality without regard to whether we really think in our heart of hearts that those actions are legal. And and this is especially true when the Action is in service of uh, a partisan agenda that the, the president's co partisans share. And Congress, you know, which is supposed to check the president, is not only divided by partisanship of the sort I just mentioned, but it's also divided uh, bicamerally, right? And that tends to uh, enervate Congress, right, because Congress um, finds itself uh, trying to stop a, uni- you know, a, a, a unitary executive when it's riven by factions, party personalities, and by two chambers. And so in the book, I I say the presidency is like a, 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 a fighter jet, and the Congress is like a sitting duck aircraft carrier that moves slowly and that is very ponderous. And in, in that situation, the presidency is typically going to win. And then my final point is that nothing is sacrosanct about the presidency. If you can uh, if, if the presidency over time can acquire the power to wage war, what which is basically the power to declare it, if the presidency over time can acquire legislative authority from express congressional delegations, but also through doctrines like the Chevron Doctrine, but also through creative, interpretive, legal uh, interpretations of statutes. And then finally, if the president can essentially, in some respects, bypass the Senate's check on the treaty power, there is nothing that the president can't do with respect to the meets and bounds of Article II. Anything that you think is a fundamental feature of Article II need not be, because with the passage of time and the accretion of pro-presidential practices, what was once thought to be obvious will no longer be with, with the accretion of these practices. And so you may think that there's some sort of signal feature of the president today that everyone agrees on, but that, that can be undone in a year or two, or, or perhaps 10 years. And so, you know, nothing is sacrosanct about Article 2, including the oath, right? Because if we can imagine re- reimagine Article 2 in various ways, and we have as a, as a nation, why can't we reimagine or re-understand um, Article, the Article 2 presidential oath, which reads, is very specific, but you know, its contents can can drift over time and can be given new meaning by new generations. So I'll end with those with those four points. Um, you know, I I I do end the book with a hopeful note with a, a baker's dozen of reforms that Congress could enact if it wanted to check the presidency. And I argue that this is the perfect time to do that. Why? Because we don't know who the next president's gonna be, and behind that veil of ignorance members of Congress might be willing to oppose the current president because they're worried about what a Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders, or whoever might do. And so there, it, it tries to end on a hopeful note. Uh, but again, you'll, you know, to get the full thrust of it, you'll have to buy that book. Thank you so much.
0: Uh, over to you, Jack, I, I should say, uh, uh please do uh, send those questions in on, uh, Either on the event page uh, or uh, over Twitter, YouTube, or Facebook with the hashtag Kato Events.
2: Ready? So, yep. thank you very much. It's a, it's a real honor for me to be here today to talk uh, about Sy's great new book. Um, I read a lot of book on books on presidential power, and this is one of the best. There's there are few people more expert, probably no one more expert on the history of the presidency on the legal constraints on the presidency and the original understanding of the legal constraints on the presidency. Um, I love the book. I learned a lot from it. But my job is not to uh, praise the book, but to raise some questions. And I have four points uh, as well to in response to, to Sai's points. They don't match up completely, but they do a little bit. The first point is Si is right that um, The arc of presidential power has gone steadily up over time and it's gone steadily up over time because presidents are in a better position to take the initiative, interpret laws and interpret constraints and expand their powers. And there's no doubt that I think he's right that the courts, excuse me, that the executive branch is ultimately uh, the um, the most consequential interpreter of the Constitution when it comes to executive power. Because it has the auto-interpretation power, it can interpret interpret its own powers. It can act on that and put the other two branches on the defensive. I just want to say, though, and Sy acknowledges this in his book, but I think it's important to understand: Congress and the courts have gone along with every step of it. Everything he talks about in the book—the uh, rise of war powers, the rise of um, uh, the administrative state. Um, almost all of it, 95% of it, I would say. Congress has gone along with, Congress has appropriated for an ever larger and larger uh, military, which is what enables the president to use his military powers broadly. Congress is the one that created the administrative state. Um, so this has been a, and the courts have basically accepted it. Occasionally they push back, but ultimately over the arc of history, it's they're pushing back at the margins and they're basically accepting the growth in presidential power. So what we're talking about here is is the undoubted growth of the executive to a place where it's completely different than what the framers expected. Uh, but it's been acquiesced in by all three branches of the government. That's the first point I wanted to make. And it's been enabled because of that as well. The second point I want to uh, Sai says in the book, whether we like it or not, we live under a regime of informal constitutional and legal change that the text of our federal constitution and our national laws may not change that often. Their meanings can and do. And I believe this is an accurate statement of uh, the way executive power has uh, gone over over the centuries. But I want to emphasize that this is not a recent phenomenon. This is the way that constitutional interpretation and change happened from the very beginning. Psy is critical of congressional executive agreements in in the book. These are substitutes for the treaty power. Basically, it's a statutory authorization for the president to make executive agreements, which makes it easier to make executive agreements than the treaty power. I think it seems pretty obvious that the framers thought that international agreements would have to go through the Senate process with two-thirds. But the first congressional executive agreement was 1792. An, an agreement that authorized uh, the post office to make international agreements for international postal mail. Another example is uh, George Washington in the Neutrality Proclamation in 1793, uh, asserted very broad, a very broad conception of implicitly very broad conception of executive power in declaring neutrality in the European War, the the uh, the European War, and in claiming an ability to prosecute those who. Um, who violated the statute, even without congressional legislation. There was a famous debate, Pacificus and Helvidius, and between Madison and Hamilton. And the debate is, who knows who won? Everybody has a different view. But the point is, from the the very beginning, the president was making very contested interpretations of his own powers to expand executive power. So this has been, my first two points are, this has been going on since the beginning, and ultimately Congress and the courts have acquiesced into it acquiesced into it the third point is I just want to take a little bit of issue with tie with size uh, claim that um, tying the rise of executive power to uh, a progressive view of the Constitution and living constitutionalism I think this is accurate for the most part I think for most of the 20th century from from the beginning of the Progressive Era throughout the New Deal throughout the 50s and, and more or less the 60s it was, it was progressives and it was uh, progressive thinkers who favored the strong presidency, the heroic presidency. And it was conservative thinkers through that period who believed in a constrained presidency, a presidency that was constrained by Congress and in, intrinsically ex- constrained. But I would say in the last 40 years, it has been conservatives who, and again, there's a range of opinion within the academy, but that's interesting in itself, but conservative governments uh, Uh, that have embraced very broad views of executive power in the name of originalism. Um, This got going when, um, in the 80s primarily, it's it's too long a story to tell, but it got going in the 80s primarily when conservatives rediscovered the unitary executive as a function of the original understanding and they embraced a, a robust conception of executive power as a matter of the original understanding. Uh, a very important intervention in this debate was when john yu wrote his famous article in the 1960s explaining that the president as an original matter based on original materials could uh, use military force uh, without congressional authorization it was the at bush, both bush administrations bush 1 and 2 who under the guise of originalist thinking embraced extremely broad conceptions of executive power to set aside uh, statutory restrictions, especially in war powers, but not limited to that. Um, and it was conservatives, I think it's fair to say, who were uh, in, the, in the guise of Justice Scalia, but others who were really pushing the Chevron doctrine, which Sy which criticizes. So I think it's a mixed story about uh, whether it's progressivism or originalism in the last 30 or 40 years that, that has, uh, that has um, really been the font of the growing executive. And I'll say that uh, you know if you look at the Obama administration, the main sins on executive power of the Obama administration were wielding executive power, wielding delegations very aggressively, and using the take care power to enforce or not enforce statutes. Uh, but the signal, the signal uh, position of the Bush administration, wielding executive principles, the central executive power um, principle that they're known for is disregarding statutes under the name of Article Two. And that was primarily based on an original understanding. So I don't think this is a one-sided story about originalism versus progressivism. I also commend uh, Attorney General Barr's speech, which was grounded in originalist principles, his famous speech at the Federal Society last fall, which uh, on, on the basis of originalist principles contemplated a very broad, robust executive. My last point uh, is talking about reform. And Cy has an excellent menu of 13 reforms that he Uh, proposes, and then I think three reforms which he thinks aren't constitutional on originalist grounds, but he nonetheless urges Congress to consider in light of executive aggrandizement. And I just have two things to say about this, and and it raises a larger point, and then I'll stop. The first thing is some of these proposals suffer from what Adrian Vermeule and Eric Posner call the inside-outside problem, and we can get rid of that jargon. What they basically mean is that uh, the reason we got in the soup we're in right now in terms of massive executive power is that congress has for a variety of structural and self-interested reasons become incapable of governing they've given away the store they've given massively open to delegations across every conceivable topic and the president's been very happy to receive those and so that there's a, there are mechanisms and pressures behind that that inform uh, why congress has done that So the question is, once we get to the reform era, how are we going to have a Congress that, as Psy proposes, basically stops delegating executive power? How are we going to have a a Congress that is going to, as Psy suggests, basically cut the military budget by 75% if the president uses force without congressional authorization? Um, I think some of the reforms are realistic. I think some of the reforms are not realistic based on the premises of the book about uh, congressional uh, abdication of power. And the last point is, um, I'm not even sure if we, if and I'm wondering what, I wonder what Sai thinks about this. If he got every single one of his reforms, set aside the delegation problem. If Congress stopped delegating power, uh, that would certainly cut back on the executive. I question whether uh, in a modern, in our modern government, given the complexity of it, that Congress could actually do that—that that we could actually go back to the old model where Congress legislates clearly and narrowly, and the president just enforces the law—to the extent that, that ever was the model. But I just think that with every other reform, SI proposes, even if they were implemented, I actually don't think it would cut back the executive very much. It, it's basically whittling away at the margins, sometimes thicker margins, sometimes thinner margins. But the reason that we have such a powerful presidency, for better or worse, and some days I like it and some days I don't, it depends on the context. The reason we have such a powerful presidency is because our government and our society have grown more complex and the structures in Congress have not been able to deal with those. And it's not just in the United States, it's in every country in the world. There's been a massive growth in executive power, massive delegation of executive power. So I'm not sure, and, and I'm just not sure the reforms would really cut back, certainly not to 1789, Certainly, I don't even think to before 1937. So I'll stop there. Let me say those were critical comments, but this is a truly extraordinary book, and I really recommend it very, very highly.
0: I had a, Thanks, Jack. I, I had a couple of questions of my own, but I think that's a lot that you want. So why don't we go over to Cy for uh, his response to any of those four points?
2: Oh, you're not on.
1: Apologies. I, I want to thank Jack for his excellent comments and certainly uh, agree with the last comment that you should buy the book. As far as Whoa. his four principal comments go, I, I agree with the first and the fourth. I, I think he's right that it's going to be hard for Congress to overcome its tendencies. and In a book written by a scholar, it's typically not the way that congress reforms itself it takes some sort of measure of introspection and maybe some cataclysmic event for congress to to reform itself maybe that's the trump administration and 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 you know it's not not the book per se i also agree that there were disputes about presidential power uh, in the early years of the washington administration there were all kinds of disputes and i talk about those in the in imperial from the beginning but from my perspective those were marginal disputes they weren't about There was no claim that the president could wage war, Uh, and I don't think that the Postal Convention comes close to what's happened with respect to the treaty power today in terms of the erosion of the the Senate check. And then, you know, Jack's uh, third comment about progressives versus originalists uh, as as sort of the progenitors of the modern presidency. I think Jack's absolutely right that there are, are people who are originalists who that the founders created a a rather strong presidency. I'm I'm one of them, um, but I think the presidency was meant to be limited uh, as well. And my my point is that the the modern presidency is transgressing lots of those limits. And so in the book, I do briefly talk about whether originalists are faithful to originalism when they defend uh, the the idea that the president can wage war without congressional authorization, And, and I argue not. Uh, but Jack's absolutely right that m- most of my ire is is uh, you know, is is uh, aimed at uh, progressives and the theory of the living constitution. And finally, Jack is right that presidential change occurred before the theory of a living constitution took root. I just think that the theory is an accelerant to that change.
0: But let me pick up on a couple of those points, uh, particularly. Jack's point three, um, you know, I, I agree that the, uh, growth of presidential power has been, uh, you know, like many horrible things, a bipartisan, uh, mistake and, uh, with the progressives, uh, being more responsible in the early part of the 20th century and the last 40 years with, uh, conservatives, giving them a, a run for their money. Um, one thing that occurred to me though, as I was reading the book, was uh, more specifically, what would a living constitutionalist say about this theory? You, for example, uh, saw you write that a living constitutionalist, by definition, can have no foundational objection to informal constitutional change, and you know I thought, it, is that right? Uh, saying that the Constitution can should and whether we like it or not does evolve doesn't mean you're indifferent to uh you know that that all change is sort of legitimate it may uh the fact of a malleable constitution certainly empowers uh and puts the executive branch in the best uh position to force in, in informal extra constitutional change but you have a couple of foils, uh, sort of in, in the book, uh, living constitutionalists. So one of them, uh, is Bruce Ackerman. Uh, another is David Strauss. And you, couldn't they say that by their criteria, uh, these, these changes aren't legitimate. Uh, you know, Ackerman has this constitutional moments theory where, uh, Sweeping changes uh, like the uh, New Deal, uh, you know, our followed or the Civil Rights Revolution are typically followed and ratified by uh, a historic election. Uh, couldn't Ackerman say, "Well, Truman in you know Truman launching a war in Korea without any congressional authorization was nothing like that. Uh, you know, he wasn't vindicated in the election." Uh, He left office deeply unpopular. Uh, Maybe David Strauss would say, you know, no, my theory is that uh, it's mostly focused on judges um, and common law constitutionalism is an evolutionary, mostly incremental, judicial-driven process, and the president, uh, you know, launching a war is not really what wasn't what I meant at all. Uh, so I kind of wonder if you could expand a little uh, on that, and then a related question. Um, yeah, you you do uh, you say that there are, uh, that uh, there's sort of fair weather living constitutionalists who repair to uh, originalism when it, it gets the political results that they want, and there are also fair weather originalists uh you're really much easier on the fairweather originalists uh, <laughs> you, you know you, you don't mention really any of them by name um and oh there's uh there's one passage that stuck out to me in the in that section uh when it comes to the presidency it sometimes seems that originalists supply different rules uh for instance some originalists imagine that the founders created a presidency meant to enjoy almost plenary authority over foreign affairs. Um, And it seems that's sort of like a masterpiece of understatement. Uh, You know, the the Federalist Society (laughs) is is not a monolith, uh, you know, certainly as it's been caricatured. But uh, it seems to me the dominant view is uh, something much more like, if you look at the panels they have on executive power, is something much more like John Yoo. Um, so I guess the two questions, would a living constitutionalist buy this theory or would they say, you know, no, in my method or my, my argument, uh, you can't really hang this on me and uh, why so easy on the Fairweather originalists?
1: So let me, let me, these are great questions, Gene. Let me first respond to the last question about fair weather originalism. And I think it's fair. And I think you and Jack are both pointing to this. Maybe I should have discussed originalism more in particular originalists like John You, uh, I was thinking of John in that section. And that basically is a section that's designed in part to respond to him. And of course, all the claims about war power are, are, are responses to his originalist scholarship that Jack referenced earlier so perhaps more should have been done there i have been on these originalist panels on the federal society and i have you know i have i have views on presidential power that are sometimes quite broad it depends on the question right i believe the president can direct law execution and fire federal officials who are involved in that and that's a that's an aggressive reading of uh, the vesting clause of article 2 so, but I, but I ground that, I think, on the original understanding, or at least my understanding of that understanding, and I hope that I'm right, but obviously others can, can claim that I'm wrong. So I think more could have been done there. With respect to the, uh, how living constitutionalists might respond, I think you're right that Professor Ackerman, who's, you know, both Professor Ackerman and Professor Strouth are, are, are brilliant. I think Professor Ackerman would say that there, it doesn't meet all his criteria for uh, legitimate change. And I think, you know, I tried to respond to this in the book. And my, my basic point is there are lots of people who believe in uh, non-Article Five amendments. Professor Ackerman has a particular theory that has a lot of steps. And he's free to say that these changes don't satisfy those steps. But most living constitutionalists don't have such a, a highly structured or complicated theory of constitutional change. And for them, they can't rely on Ackerman's six-step uh, theory. And, and then having said that, it's not possible to say in advance that these changes to the presidency haven't satisfied Ackerman's uh, steps, right? Because you actually have to do the inquiry. You have to do the hard work that Ackerman purports to do. And so if you look at Ackerman's work over time, he is finding constitutional amendments over time that is to say he hasn't he he's not saying i have discovered all the non uh, article 5 amendments and and this is the universe what he's saying is i've studied this area and i've learned that congressional executive agreements are now constitutional or i've studied this area and i think the civil rights act of 1964 is you know quasi constitutional in some respects so his his universe of, of informal constitutional amendments that satisfy his criteria is changing over time. David Skrouse, uh, uh, his book on the living constitution is a wonderful book. I don't think he has detailed criteria for when we are to recognize a change in the living constitution. And much of his changes, much of his description of constitutional change is a claim that the constitution changed even before certain formal amendments. And so if you look at his discussion of the 17th amendment, he he writes as if the, the idea of popular elections was partly constitutionalized even before the formal text was enacted. So I, I don't think that he can say that, uh, you know, no aspects of the living presidency are constitutional because they're not judge-driven. I think he has a role for Congress to play, a role for the people to play. It's not just a judge-driven uh, theory of constitutional change. If if it is, you know, then 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 obviously he's able to use that as a defense, but I don't think that that's his theory. Thanks for that question, Gene. Sure.
0: Um, well, I have... Uh... I have another uh, another question on um, Trump. You know, we, it was inevitable that we'd talk about him. Uh, you know, we're getting ready for this. I I I asked everybody if they if Trump had done anything shocking and horrible in the the last half an hour that we needed to be uh, current on. Uh, <laughs> and I don't know if any of us checked, but uh, I you, you have a description, uh, which, uh, seems to me, uh, perfectly accurate as the way that, that, uh, the presidency has amassed power. Um, but it occurred to me, you know, as I, as I was reading it, that, uh, Trump has not exactly followed in this pattern. Um, you know, the, uh, for example, with regard to the pandemic, you know, if you had told me that uh, we were going to uh, you know, suffer an event that would kill many more people than nine eleven and do more economic damage than the uh, two thousand eight financial crisis, I'd have said, "Well, we're, there will be a massive accumulation of presidential power. President presidential power tends to grow in crisis." Uh, and despite these sort of inhi- unhinged crank theories of executive power that come out at the coronavirus briefings, uh, you know, total authority over the states and, and uh, that sort of thing, uh, the where the rubber meets the road, the actual use of executive power with respect to the pandemic has been fairly restrained. You almost don't want to use the word restrained because it's it's not as though there's some kind of deep constitutional scruple that or cincinnatus like virtue that, uh, is operating here. <laughs> but I think you would have expected, uh, you know, ex ante to see a much more significant concentration of power. And sorry, I think in fact, you wrote a couple of columns, uh, about this. Uh, how do you, how do you, expl- how do you account for that? And what do you think is going on there and, uh, uh, it, with with Trump and COVID-19 and perhaps with the Trump presidency in general?
1: So with respect to Trump and COVID-19, my, my sense is that the president's calling card was going to be the economy and he was going to run on the economy. And given that, he doesn't want to flex executive power to order shutdowns of states because that would make it harder for him to get reelected. And so I think he's forbearing claiming or actually using executive power principally because he doesn't see that it'll help him electorally, right? So it's it's a weird situation where choosing not to do something increases the chances that the state governors or the state legislatures will keep their economies going. It's still a bridge too far for the president to claim that he can force states to allow private businesses to conduct business right so in other words he's not able to find anybody who who will tell him mr president you not only have the authority to shut down the economy you have the authority to force it back open if someone were telling him this i think it is possible that he might try to sort of seize that authority in terms of the trump presidency more generally this is you know This isn't a book about the Trump presidency. I didn't want to focus on him. I thought that would be distorting of the sort of more general thesis of the book. I I kind of view the Trump presidency as sort of more of the same. I don't view it as fundamentally different in kind. The president, you know, is sometimes prone to making exaggerated claims about his presidential authority, but that's just in keeping with his, you know, sort of penchant for boasting. But in terms of the actual claims being made, I think you can find similar claims being made across the prior two or three administrations, they're just, they may be in service of different political ends or different policy ends, but they're the same sorts of claims, right? So spending money or reallocating money, you know, uh, with respect to the wall has its parallels with respect to uh, propping up Obamacare and subsidizing insurance companies. Uh, The attacks on Syria have have their parallel with respect to the, the war in Libya. And so you can go on and on. I think Obviously, different people complained about different presidents, right? Republicans complained about uh, Obama, and now it's you know Democrats complaining about Trump. But the the sort of actions I don't think are fundamentally different.
2: Jack. Yeah, so I just want to say one thing about Trump, if I could, and then I'll have a a question for Sai. I actually, following up on what I said, I actually think I mean, Trump has been bombastic in his claims on executive power. He's exercised his hard executive powers, like the pardon power and the firing power, very aggressively, but not unlawfully. Um, and but, but the characteristic ex- excesses of his predecessors and his immediate predecessors aren't his. I actually don't think he has been as aggressive and imaginative. In expanding and manipulating uh, delegated power, as President Obama was, he is not engaged in uh, disregarding statutes with the elaborate and, and aggressive theories that President Bush did. Um, he's not followed through on the threatening things he said he would. A lot of the threatening things he said he would do on the campaign trail. So, in some sense, Trump is this really menacing figure, and I do think that he is he is a menacing figure. Uh, Many reasons, and primarily do, but he's primarily doing things that aren't at the edges of executive power. They're things that presidents didn't do because norms constrain them from doing. So I think, in some senses, and the emergency power stuff is in in line with this, he's been a somewhat more modest president. My question for Cy is this is a, uh, I don't know what the answer to this is. You know, executive power has been growing steadily since the beginning, it's taken, it took a sharp turn upwards in the Civil War, took a really sharp turn upwards uh, after the, during the New Deal and World War II, and it's been kind of rising steadily ever since. And as we discussed, you know, this has been in a reaction to changes and making society being more complex. Congress and the courts have got along with it. I guess my question is, what is the status of, what, what is your view on originalism compared to this growth? I mean, you attribute it to um, living constitutionalism but it's kind of been going on since the beginning. And um, so does that mean that originalism is as a theory belied by constitutional history, that originalism is a normative theory about the way the Constitution should be interpreted, but it's belied by all of our history? Or is there a way, as you know, scholars like Will Bode have been trying to reconcile uh, a version of originalism with constitutional liquidation through practice, do you think that there's a version of originalism that can accommodate change through practice?
1: Well, first, you know, just to, to ping off Jack's comment about Trump, I think Jack's largely right that I don't think Trump um, has been as aggressive as some of his critics have suggested. Um, but you know, it's it's a good thing in a way that people um, are. You know, push back on claims of executive power because if you don't push back, it's an open door, right? You, you just can just push the door open and do almost anything you want. So there's there's a there's a value in people perhaps exaggerating uh, claims of you know exaggerating it about the scope of presidential claims. With respect to Jack's uh, thoughtful uh, question, I think I think for the first century there were there were obviously disputes about. The the constitutions meaning across many different questions, right? The bank, you know, the removal power, uh, the scope of uh, of the necessary and proper clause, the scope of the commerce clause, and whether there was a dormant commerce clause. There are all kinds of legal questions, and the the answers to those questions sometimes drifted over time. I think that's just going to happen in any system. You're not going to Always be able to stay true to the original meeting, even if you think that's what you're trying to do. It's just inevitable. It's like a it's like the game of telephone, right? You you you're conveying a message to someone and then the message gets garbled in the transmission, and, and by the end of the process, 10 people later, the, the message is very different. I don't take disputes about the scope of presidential or congressional power as signaling that originalism was a failure from the beginning. So the fact that Hamilton and Madison disagreed about the President's Neutrality Proclamation in 1793 doesn't to me suggest that originalism is a failure because I don't think originalism is a theory that suggests that there are definitive answers to all questions or that there won't be reasonable disagreements or that there won't be unreasonable disagreements. I happen to think that Hamilton was right. I I happen to think that Madison was wrong. And there's a telling quote from Madison years later about his arguments as Helvidius that suggests that Hamilton himself did not believe he was right when he wrote as Helvidius. Uh, And then you can can go on to other questions. And I think in some of those questions are just gonna be reasonable people who disagree reasonably about the original meaning. I think there's a fundamental shift in the 20th century where people are openly contemplating the idea that Sure, these, the text remains the same, but the meaning ought to change over time. And once you do that, I think it's, it's, it's entirely open to one's imagination as to what those words mean and what we can have them mean. And I give the example in the book of Woodrow Wilson, who was definitely in favor of what he called an evolving Darwinian constitution. Um, but at the same time, he, he argued that the president should never pervert statutes to, p- to pursue policy ends. And he seemed to think it was immoral. And I point out that once you say that the meaning of the constitution, the meaning of the constitution, can change over time, why would it be the case that the president would uh, could never acquire authority to pervert statutes right through in, uh, ingenious interpretations? And so I, I basically claim that Wilson was in, insufficiently Wilsonian in his in his. You know, embrace of living constitutionalism, which is my sort of more my more basic claim with respect to progressives more generally. So I, you know, I do think that you know or, originalists can be wrong about the original Constitution, and I think that Jack's right that um, presidents, um, some conservative presidents, have wrapped themselves in the mantle of the founders to make arguments about the original presidency that are wrong. Uh, and so that, of course, is an originalist argument and and it's being used in service of of an expansive presidency but i I still do believe that that argument can at least be evaluated, and maybe it'll be hard to evaluate sometimes, maybe it will be less hard to evaluate but the you know the claim that the constitution's meaning can and ought to change over time, I think once you say that, you're basically liberating every single branch to. Acquire president uh, to acquire power, including the president, and as I've argued, uh, the presidency is best situated to do that more so than the other institutions. It's harder for Congress to articulate a theory of congressional power because it's hard for them to pass a statute, much less much less an opinion defending the statute. And the courts, you know, as everyone knows, they they opine episodically and fitfully only in the context of real cases. So. I think it's true that there are all kinds of constitutional disputes early on, but I don't think that's a failure of originalism in terms, finally, in terms of Will Bode's theory, I, I'm dubious of a, you know, I, I think Will is a tremendous scholar. I, I'm a little dubious of a theory, which of, of an originalist theory, which which says um, of the constitution, the constitution has an original meaning, but if people get it wrong, the the wrongness itself um, can be treated as if it were right on grounds that that's part of the original understanding of the Constitution. That is to say, if you get something wrong long enough, we ought to continue following it. I, I don't really think there's a lot in favor of that. Madison doesn't himself say this. What he says is, I think that early practices can liquidate into a, 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 a solid understanding of the Constitution, but Will contemplates liquidation and then reliquidation, right that as the practices change it's possible to read madison as saying that the new practices are themselves going to be understood as an originalist understanding of the constitution and i think that's a, a, a bridge too far i don't know if that's a a proper reading of madison
0: i want to uh get to as many questions as possible in the remaining 10 or so minutes. And I want to apologize to the audience out there. This is kind of my fault. Uh, I was scrolling up for new questions instead of, instead of scrolling down. And to my surprise, I saw a bunch of questions, many more than I thought. So uh, let's consider this a, a lightning round uh, if we can. <laughs> um, now, uh, I'll give you, so I'm gonna give you two uh here, I think uh, at least one of them you, you have, uh, you've you touched on, at least in your, in your most recent remarks. Um, this is from Jack Brickove, uh if I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, I, if disputes about the extent of presidential power have been going on since the beginning, or at least 1793, as Jack says, does that not destroy the idea that there was a coherent consensus view of the nature and extent of executive power at the outset? Uh, and uh, I'll add to that one by Samuel Moyne. Um, why originalism? We've seen originalist arguments on the right, notably John Hughes, contribute to, to expanding presidential powers. That the left is selectively and strategically originalist may mean we should abandon originalism, not double down. Those, both of those questions, I think, from the main website.
1: Sure. So to take up uh, uh, Professor Moyne's question, I think that's a it's a wonderful response. I think what I would say is that uh, only a theory of fixed meaning has hope of possibly corralling the presidency. That is to say, uh, uh, originalism, I think, properly understood as applied to our Constitution, contemplates that the meaning of the Constitution is fixed and that the Constitution itself doesn't have it the seeds of its own um, uh, amendment via informal means. And so I think if you're trying to contain the presidency, originalism provides a formula whereas once you start with the premise that the meaning of the constitution uh, can and should change over time, you're of course uh, making it quite possible for the president to to change the office that he is sworn to to faithfully execute, which effectively as I argue in the book renders the oath clause meaningless. So I I think that originalism holds the promise of containing the presidency in a way that the living constitution does not. Professor Rakoff is is an old friend. Um, I, I think Professor Rakoff's question is very similar to Jack's. I think the existence of reasonable disputes about the fringes of executive power does nothing to call into question the idea that originalism solves or answers certain questions. Can the president start a war? I think the originalist answer is clearly no. John Yu has written a very long article arguing otherwise, but he doesn't have anyone from the founding actually adopting his approach in the face of quotes from Madison, Hamilton, the apostle of executive power, George Washington, Henry Knox, Thomas Jefferson. There's just no one at the founding who thought that the president could start a war because they understood that, that would mean to declare it. So there are. Difficult questions with respect to the scope of presidential power, just like there are difficult questions about the scope of legislative power. There are easy questions, I think, from the originalist point of view. The existence of hard questions I don't think makes originalism uh, fatally unattractive, I'll put it that way.
0: I have one from Patrick Sobkowski for I, either Jack or Cy. With regard to removal power, do you think that Congress can ever permissibly place for-cause removal limitations on executive officers? It seems that that would be a way to rein in executive power with a textual hook in the necessary and proper clause. That's a great question, not on this. So That's a great
1: question. I, I, you know, I've written about this, but not in this book. It really doesn't discuss removal authority at all. I, th- I think the basic question is, what is the horizontal effect of the sweeping clause, namely the necessary and proper clause? And if you think that Congress can put a removal restraint on the president, um, I think you have to ask what else can Congress do to the president and or the courts? And my basic view of executive power is it's fundamentally about the power to execute the law, which I believe means the president can control the execution of law by subordinate executive officers and personnel. And I'd analogize it to giving for-cause protection to the clerk of the court. Can can Congress say to the clerk of the court, you're going to have for-cause protection and you can enter any judgments you want about who won this case without regard to what the judge actually wants? And if you think you can do that, then I think you can likewise do it with respect to the President. Now, this doesn't seem like an obvious comparator or an obvious uh, an obviously good comparison. But judges decide the meaning of the law when they decide cases. And I, my view is the President decides the meaning of the law as the chief executive of the executive branch. So I think it's deeply problematic to 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 regard Congress as having the authority. To impose four cause restrictions on the removal of executive officers. Now, having said that, the Supreme Court doesn't think that I'm right. And the Supreme Court has obviously endorsed all kinds of four cause protections, but they've done so in a rather muddled way, right? They've never really explained why it would be constitutional for independent prosecutors, but not constitutional for the Department of Commerce. Maybe the court will enlighten us in in the, you know, in the in the months to come.
0: Question from Sam, uh, again, from the Cato site. Could the fact that both houses of Congress are rarely controlled by the opposing party be part of the problem? I.e. at least one chamber of Congress is almost always predisposed toward not hamstringing the president's ability to accomplish his agenda. I think you talk about some of this in in the book, side: the uh, separation of parties, not powers. to- well, Sam's absolutely right.
1: I have a section of the book called "Houses Divided," and it basically builds upon Lincoln's point about a house divided cannot stand. And the, the basic point is that a chamber, you know, a a a, a bicameral institution divided by partisanship and divided uh, into two chambers can't stand up to the president, or finds it more difficult. And I, I ask the reader to think about well, what would you know? How would Congress's ability to check the president be different if it were unicameral. I think the answer is it would be easier. It wouldn't be it wouldn't be easy necessarily because it would still be a plural institution with many different members pulling in different directions. But it would be far easier if we had a unicameral continental congress than as compared to a bicameral Congress with two chambers. That's that's absolutely right.
0: Uh Question from Peter out in Beaverton, Oregon: Why has Congress ceded so much power to the president? Not only military power, but things like trade. Congress has gone along with it, as Jack says. But why has it? So basically, the problem of delegation. Why does it happen?
1: Well, I think with respect to war powers, the typical story that I that I agree with is that the Congress doesn't want to be responsible for these earth shattering decisions to send American troops overseas and potentially die in a foreign land. And that explains congressional reticence to, to weigh in on wars. And, you know, they don't want to criticize the president and find out that the war is a great success or the war is over three days later. Um, And they don't want to criticize the president because it'll often be construed as criticizing the troops. Why are you criticizing this military operation when our boys and and girls are overseas? With respect to trade, I don't have a story. I I don't know enough about the legislative history for trade authority to to figure that out. But, But I suspect it's to give the president flexibility with respect to trade. Uh, in an era where they thought the president was was generally predisposed to more free trade, right? Trump is the first sort of anti-free trade president we've had in in, in decades. And, and they gave this authority in a context where they thought the president would be more willing to lower tariff barriers rather than to raise them. And they found out that this president doesn't have that set of policy preference. But the precise reason, I, I'm not sure I know the reason why.
0: Okay, I think... Uh... That's about all the time we have. Um, I wanted to, I wanna thank Sai uh, for, uh, and uh, Jack for uh, participating. I, I want to recommend that everybody go out and uh, get a copy of The Living Presidency. Uh, there is a link on the Cato page, on the event page to uh, get this book, which uh, about which George Will uh, says, with this exquisitely timed book, Prakash explains how we arrived at today's urgent need to recage the executive lion. Um, I also uh, want to apologize to anyone out there who uh, didn't get their question uh, addressed. We had a lot of them roll in and uh, uh, weren't able to get to all of them. Um, but uh, please participate in the future. And the video recording of this event will be available on the Cato webpage tomorrow uh, for anybody who wants to, to watch. Uh, thanks again to, uh, to Jack and Cy, and thanks to all of you for tuning in.